Have you heard? 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 Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Have You Heard? I'm Aaron French. And I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And this is officially our second episode. I can't believe it. I know, it's crazy. We actually are doing this thing, huh? Um, And before we get started, though, and and dig in, I did want to let everybody know that we actually met our funding goal already within two weeks, $15,000. And so we really want to thank everybody out there that's given their time and their money to helping us promote this. Um, And we're really excited to bring you the show this season. And best of all, we can stop bothering you about giving us money. No more money talk. No more money talk. So where are we going this time, Jennifer? We're headed down south. We're going to New Orleans. A lot of people know that New Orleans is really the site of the biggest experiment in urban education in the country. But I'm betting that what almost no one has heard is that there is kind of an uprising happening there. And it's being led by someone who is a little surprising. And... Are we saying his name? Oh, let's go ahead. It's Dr. Howard Fuller. There we go. And what I really like about this interview, number one, it's a little bit different of a style than what folks heard in our first episode, but he... You can't fit Howard into a box. That's because he's really tall. <laughs> he is very tall. Uh, but also, he's he's kind of what I like to call an equal opportunity offender. I think there's a lot of people who will love and hate what he says in this episode, which I kind of dig. Well, what do you think? Should we go talk to Dr. Howard Fuller? Let's go. I'm here in downtown New Orleans with Dr. Howard Fuller. Thank you so much for for inviting me to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure. And I'm here to talk to you because New Orleans is really sort of the experiment in, in urban education reform. You've been an advocate for school choice going back now decades. And I think a lot of people would expect that you would be in a place like New Orleans cheering it on. And <laughs> in fact, something very interesting has happened. You're actually leading what might be described as a little bit of an uprising. <laughs> talk about talk about what's going on, and we're going to dig into that. Yeah, you know, I, what it is is that over the past probably about 16 months, I really spent a lot of my personal time focused on New Orleans. And, and, and it started out by me sitting down and having one-on-ones with about, I'd say about 20 uh, African Americans from different you know, sectors of this community. And I really asked them two questions. What do you think about education reform in New Orleans? And what do you think about black people's role in it? The one overriding theme was, this has been done to us and not with us. And Talk a little bit about about what that means. So we're, we're here today, we're now past the 10 year anniversary mm-hmm. of Katrina. There was an enormous amount of attention paid over the summer to, to what's happened here mm-hmm. and whether it's worked or not in terms of graduation rates and in, in boosting test scores. But I think a lot of people who don't know anything about New Orleans don't know sort of the basics of, of what the reform vision looks like that um, that there aren't neighborhood schools anymore. Instead, kids can basically attend schools all over the city. Yeah, I mean, I think the, from what I see and, and from what I know, um, a lot of kids are much, much better off today than they were, but a lot of kids are not. But, but the, the, the larger question is what role 
has the black community played in making this happen? And the argument that I'm trying to make is that if there's a significant segment of the black community who feels, even if there are things that are now better, but they have not played a significant role in making it better, or they haven't played a significant role in the power relationships, or if you have significant numbers of people who see the effort to change education and the way that it's being done as a larger part of the disempowerment of black people in the city of New Orleans, even the good things that are happening, in my mind, they are, uh, there's a danger of the ability to sustain it if we, if we can't build a broader base of support within the black community itself. Plus you have, as you know, the whole issue of the 7,000 employees being fired, uh, 4,300 of whom I think were black teachers. And so that has left uh, a, a, a deep wound in this community that even after 10 years has not been dealt with. Well, I'll set the stage a little bit because you and I are, and we're uh, right smack in the heart of downtown, and it is really striking the degree to which New Orleans is getting richer and whiter. And I told you that before we met up, I went to a sort of she-she coffee place <laughs> where my cup of coffee cost $3.90, and I couldn't help but notice that out of a huge staff, there was only one uh, black person working on the staff. And you sort of wonder, well, where where are the where are the 40% of of African Americans, the native New Orleanians, who are now sort of holding on to a city that's changing so quickly. The class issue is such a a, a major issue, and that's the the intersection with education reform, because I do believe, and I will continue to fight as long as I'm able to create really really good schools. But we can't sit here and act as if schools alone can solve the types of problems that we see in New Orleans. But at the same time, we do have to do everything that we can to make sure that all of the children get the best education possible. Now, when you start talking about class, I get very excited because, uh, you know, no one really talks that way anymore, even though it seems like <laughs> it might be coming back into vogue. If you if you talk to education reform advocates, they'll typically argue that if we can just, you know, get create really great schools, get kids uh, in front of, get the best teachers in front of kids, we're going to put kids on a path to college, and that's how we're going to end poverty. And and yet it's, you know, when you look at a place like New Orleans where the class divide is so stark, I wondered if you could just sort of sketch out a vision of what a school that's sort of enmeshed in a community and in this larger vision of, of lifting a city up, what, what does that look like and, and how is it different from what New Orleans has ended up with? Well, the, the first thing I would say is that I, I do think we want to develop uh, schools that, that give kids the option to go to college, that prepares them to go to college. You rescue as many kids as you can, and you hope that you can change the trajectory of their lives, which would then change the trajectory of their families, and then, you know, you increase that number. But the reality of it is, if you were to ask me what would have the broadest impact on a community economic policy or education policy, I would say economic policy. Because to me, if the minimum wage changes, for example, or people get significantly more income, that's going to have a, a larger overall effect on a community than creating good schools. But we're kidding ourselves if we think we can just focus on creating great schools and we're not going to deal with 
the issues related to, to poverty or income inequality or the, the justice system or health disparities. But those of us who are focused on education, and particularly people who are working in schools every day, their focus has to be on how do I create the, the, the best school possible for these kids, and I applaud that. But we also have to be talking to people who are working on other elements of trying to change the community because ultimately they have to come together if the community is going to be different as opposed to individual families being better off. There is an elephant in the room and that elephant happens to have a great deal of money. As you know, it's no secret that that a lot of the supporters of the education reform movement happen to be enormously wealthy, including here in New Orleans. And I wondered, do people get, do you notice um, uncomfortable expressions on people's faces when you start talking about um, the need to deal with structural issues like poverty in a broader sense? You know, I, I mean, I don't. I mean, I, I mean, for example, uh, people often, you know, criticize me for the support that I've gotten from the Walton Family Foundation. So as you know, what happens is when you're in struggles, you deal with, 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 with contradictions. I mean, you know, so some people would say, well, you know, well, you, you're getting money from, uh, it started with Walmart. And, and my view is, yeah, I don't, I, my issue uh, is that I don't get enough money <laughs> so that I can continue this fight, right? So, you know, so I, I mean, I, I don't dodge those kind of issues because you do live with, you know, contradictions. But in order to do the kind of work that, that I'm trying to do, you have to have resources. Uh, people who, are, who oppose it are not going to give you resources. So you have to get resources from where you can get them. And then you have to take those resources and work on those things that you think are important for as long as people are willing to fund you. At some point, they may not because you get so involved that you cross the line from what they're willing to support. And I understand that. Well, I'll be very interested to see how that plays out because, um, as you know, this conversation isn't just happening in New Orleans. It's right. really happening in cities around the country. And um, if you do talk to the Waltons, maybe pass a little message on <laughs> from me. One, um, one way that they could think about tackling poverty would be to pay their workers more. Yeah, you know what? I don't talk to people from Walmart. I talk to people from the Walton family. I hear they're related. I hear they are, but they also make a distinction. If you actually talk with them, there's a there's a distinction between the foundation and Walmart. I would also say to you is, and I I would wish that Walmart would would increase wages. I want everybody to increase wages, but I also know that in community where I live, that if there was not a Walmart there wouldn't be those jobs that Walmart brings in. And so, again, that's the the kind, you can talk all you want about, well, they they ought to have more wages, and I agree. But I would also say without them, there wouldn't be employment that I see for people. So the question is, what part of the contradiction do you want to pick up and when do you want to pick it up? And so I'm not going to ever apologize for that or try to run away from it. Talk a little bit about the specific role that you see black teachers playing in this movement. Obviously, as you mentioned, the 7,000, the firing of the 7,000 employees remains a kind of unhealed wound, as you've described it. Um, and you clearly see black teachers playing a real leadership school role, not just in their in their schools, but sort of across the the education system. Talk about what that's going to look like and how you get there. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I have a huge concern about the way in which black teachers have been dealt with 
What happened was that when integration took place, a lot of black teachers lost their jobs. There was a lack of valuing the, the role of black teachers. And what I see is some analogy in the ad reform movement today. Because of the way that we've implemented it, in a number of places, black teachers have lost their jobs. Black, the, the, the role that black teachers and the value that black teachers bring to the table is not appreciated, particularly veteran black teachers. And so I'm involved with an effort to create a black teacher collaborative around the theory that we have to go to veteran black teachers. And we have to talk with them about how important they are for the, the, the effort to change education for black children. But we also have to talk to them about the importance of gaining new skills. Because one of the things that the, the ed reform movement has brought to the table are some new ideas and some new ways of educating kids and, and getting you know like better results. And black teachers have played a historic role in trying to advance the interests of black students and the black community. And I, I, I think that it is important that we reach out to these veteran black teachers and try to get them to be supportive of the need to change education. But you're not going to be able to do that if you don't approach them in a way where you, sh where you uh, show that you value what it is that they bring to the table. But they've got to improve. One of the hallmarks of the new New Orleans education system is that it's almost entirely union-free, something that excites a lot of education reform advocates as they consider what education systems in other cities are going to look like. Is there a place for a teacher's union in the Howard Fuller <laughs> vision of, of, yeah, of sort know. of black-led schools? And how do, you, how do you have the kind of teacher voice that you seem to think is key without some mechanism to keep you know teachers who are outspoken and frankly troublemakers from just getting fired when they speak up. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I, I do have a, a sort of a contradictory <laughs> reality with unions. I mean, I, I have real scars from dealing with teachers' unions, so I have a certain view from your days uh, in Milwaukee. Yeah, uh, and, and and now uh, you know about the role of teacher unions, but 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 anybody who knows anything, you, you can't not understand the important role that unions have played in in making life better for so many Americans. My issue is when the the role of the teacher unions focus on wages, hours, and working conditions to the extent that it's detrimental to what needs to happen for kids, which is, which, is, which is my issue. And so the direct answer to your question is, I do think that there are ways of trying to make sure that people have voice and power, even if they don't have unions. But I don't think that it is necessary to eliminate unions in order to try to do some of the things that I want to do. The question is whether or not some of the, the union people are willing to really come to the table and talk about very different ways of trying to work with kids and empower kids. Because there's some people who just want to get rid of unions. I'm actually not one of those, <laughs> not one of those people, although I have very serious issues with the teachers' union. Some people will want me to just stand up and be anti-union, and I'm not. But other people want me to support the teachers' union, which I don't. And so <laughs> I don't know how to answer your question. It, it's, again, it's, it, it's, it's, it's complicated. But, but, but my, my issue is trying to make sure that our children get the best education possible. And whatever impediments are in the way of that happening, 
they need to be removed or they need to be changed. One of the things that's so interesting to me about the work that you're doing in New Orleans is that you're pretty deeply engaged in what you think should happen in schools. And and you're really knowledgeable about pedagogy. And you've become quite critical of the style of of teaching that now predominates in places like New Orleans and, and is really becoming sort of the main style of schooling for minority kids in in cities across the country, and that's this no excuses model. To me, no excuses is not the same as no empathy. And so that if kids come to a school and they've slept in a car the night before, you can't say that doesn't make a difference. It does make a difference. The the, the thing is, you, you still want to insist that we give these kids the best education possible, But at the same time, we have to understand that these other issues impinge on their ability to get the best education possible. And, you know, I I, I just believe that what we want to try to do is to create an environment where kids do have to be responsible. You do have to abide by certain rules and regulations and so forth. But that we want to try to do this in a way that is humane. But I do think you still have to to say to kids, you have to be responsible. Like for in our school, we don't tolerate fighting. Uh, no 17-year-old kid is going to rise up and call one of our teachers a bitch. I mean, we're not, we're not going to tolerate that. And, and what I'm saying to these kids is you're not that. These kids don't have to respond in that way. There, there, there are things that they bring into the building by virtue of what they see in their families and in their communities that we have to say very clearly, this is not acceptable. And, and, and that's always been the way that we function in the black community. I'm not against no excuses just universally. What I'm against is some of the practices that flow from that sort of ideology or that, that, you know, that practice. So for me, it's, it, it's, it's really finding out what is it that works best for the kids that you currently have that gives them the best chance of getting the best education possible so that when they graduate, if they want to go to college, they, they, they're able. If they don't want to go to college and they want to do something else, you've still given them the type of rigorous education that allows them to make that type of decision. You have a lot of big stuff planned in the coming months uh, in New Orleans. You have an organization. Um, I, I heard a, a rumor that there's going to be some kind of a manifesto released. Uh, what what should we be looking for to happen in New Orleans in the coming year? I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I've been working with a group of people to create an organization called BNOLA, Black Education for New Orleans, Louisiana. And, you know, there's been some really great people that, that, that are a part of this, and um, we're at the point where we're, we're actually going to become, they're going to become a formal organization. I'm not, I'm not involved in it other than to be supportive and helpful. This well, because you're is, not from New Orleans. Because I'm not from New Orleans. This is going to be led by, controlled by, you know, people from New Orleans. And one part of, our, uh, of the work that we've been doing is also we want to issue a manifesto that, that, expresses the aspirations of, uh, of BNOLA and, and, and other people who will sign on to this manifesto for what we think needs to happen you know, in this community going forward. So I'm, I'm excited about the work that is going on and, and the people who've been a part of this work. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, sure. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
Thanks for tuning in to this edition of Have You Heard? We wanted to remind folks that you can reach both Jennifer and I on Twitter. We love to hear your feedback. You can tweet at Jennifer at Edushyster and me at Aaron Mofo French. Still my real Twitter handle, folks. And another really exciting development with our show is that it is now listed on iTunes and you can go with any mobile device, hit subscribe, and we'll be in your inbox anytime there's a new episode. That's it for us. And that's what we've heard. <laughs>